So welcome everyone to Shipper Fools podcast, episode 13. Uh, we're very privileged to have with us today the venerable Pano Basa, uh, dialing in from the Soviet Republic of California. Um, That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, who's been uh, developing a, a kind of, how would you say, an infamous YouTube presence online, developing slowly. Um and uh, has many perspectives that I'd say are well out of line with the uh, typical progressive takes on Buddhism that we tend to get. And uh, we're also going to try uh, something a little bit different today. I have uh, on with me God's Own Fool as a co-host and uh, infamous bleach right figurehead, I'm led to believe. So um, welcome, gentlemen. That is, that is correct, sir. Thank you. Yes. Hail. 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 Uh, so, uh, let's kick things off. Um, I think the best thing to do maybe Panabasa is obviously just to do the typical talk about yourself kind of thing. Um, a lot of people that listen to this aren't necessarily, uh, well acquainted with you or, or what you think. So, um, do you want to give us maybe a short kind of summary of your background and how you came to Theravada Buddhism? Oh, my background. All right. Well, I, I suppose I should uh, give the uh, start at the beginning. And I was born at a very early age in uh, the state of Alaska. And my father was uh, rather a strange fellow. He was like an occultist, esotericist, um, amateur hypnotist, ran a coven of witches. Um, so when I was a kid, I'd be sitting on his lap and... Um, Instead of watching TV, I'd be listening to stories of uh, past life regressions and astral traveling and this sort of thing. And uh, he considered himself to be a, a Buddhist. So that was sort of a, a foot in the door for me. And uh, just having a father like that made me more open-minded than most people anyway, I suppose. And so that was sort of uh, preparing me, conditioning me to become a, a monk from, from my childhood, I think. And uh, like most kids, I just naturally assumed when I was very young that adults had everything figured out. They knew what's what. And the reason I didn't know what's what was because I wasn't grown up yet. But by around the age of 13, I started uh, having doubts about that theory. And by like the age of 16, it became painfully obvious that the adults didn't know what's what any better than I did, which caused me to go into essentially open rebellion. I became like a feral teenager and got into lots of trouble. And so my father in a towering rage demanded that I go see a youth counselor, which in this case was uh, a life-changing experience because the youth counselor was a, a wise person who was very much interested in spirituality and especially like Eastern philosophy. And so he started giving me books by Ram Das to read I, I don't know if you're familiar with Ram Das. Yeah. But, yeah, um, yes. yeah. So, I mean, at that time, I didn't really understand it. It was, it was so different from what I was used to that I couldn't really integrate it into my body of knowledge, which is a problem that a lot of people have when they start studying um, like Eastern philosophy or something like that, where the, in order to remember something, in order to integrate it into your understanding your intellectual understanding you have to have it connected to other things 
you know, there have to be like branches where it's one thing sort of associates with another that leads you there. So you can remember these things and kind of fit it into an understanding. And so I, I didn't really understand it, but I could just sense that there was something real there, something like really worthwhile. And so I got really interested in Eastern philosophy, especially. And um, when, when you're young and idealistic and you read these books, these ancient texts that say it is possible in this very life to know ultimate reality, to attain the state of enlightenment. So probably the main motivation I had for becoming a monk was just this idea that if it is possible, then it's like a sacred duty to at least give it a shot. Interesting. But there, yeah, there are other reasons too, of course. Like I just couldn't take American materialistic culture seriously and I was unlucky in love, didn't find the right girl and all that. But uh, really it was uh, a desire to know reality was my main motivation for becoming a monk. Right. And what, what kind of age group did you, oh, sorry, age did you have this realization? Was it kind of in your early 20s or what are we talking here? Uh, I was about 17 when I made the, uh, the resolve that uh, I was going to renounce the world somehow or another. I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it. In fact, I, I preferred Zen Buddhism at first. Right. And for a while, I was even considering just getting myself a robe and a wooden bowl and just hitting the road and just sort of inventing my own, my own brand of spirituality. But I knew myself well enough to know that I would need some sort of pre-established structure to kind of keep me in line. So mm. Buddhism worked for that. And so you, you said, you just mentioned now that you uh, had a look at Zen. Is that, did that take you overseas or what happened next uh, in this, um, this story? Actually, no, this, I was still in America at this point. Okay. And I really didn't want to go to a foreign country. I didn't want to have, you know, I was going to be going for it and like, you know, practicing ascetic yoga in the forest somewhere, you know. So um, I didn't want to be bothered with visa problems or having to learn foreign languages, you know, any more than was necessary. So my original plan was just to be ordained as, as a Buddhist monk in America. So I was ordained in a, a Burmese place in California. And the Zen place that I checked out was also in California, and it just um, didn't appeal to me at all. Mm, okay. Interesting. And uh, then you made your way to Burma, which is probably where things get interesting, I think. Uh, yeah, well, they get more interesting anyway. But uh, yeah, I was ordained at a Burmese place um, near Santa Cruz in California. And California is somewhat insane anyway. I mean, the human race is somewhat insane. California is a little <laughs> bit more so. And you go to like an ashram or a monastery. And really, I mean, it can be like a neurosis amplifier. You know, it can just it can be a, a shit accelerator. So, um, you know, all in all typicality for a California spiritual center, um, there was just like chronic uproar going on. And some of the Burmese monks advised me that I should go to Burma until things settled down. So that's, that's what I did. And it was really a, an excellent idea because Burma is still very close, especially when I first got there, it's still very close to um, the way people were living in the Buddhist time, like 2,500 years ago in the Ganges Valley, like out in the villages, you know, there's still no electricity, no running water. You've got the, the guys taking their team of bullocks out to plow the fields and the girl with the clay pot on, their, on her head going down to the well or the river to, to fetch water for the hut 
you know. Mm. So th- their lifestyle was still very similar, and it was possible to literally follow the instructions in the ancient Buddhist texts, you know, from, from like ancient India, you could still live that way. You could still wander around, sleep under trees, take your bowl, walk through the village, get your, get your daily meal, that sort of thing. So it it was, uh, it was really a good experience. And I think anybody who was ordained as a Buddhist monk ought to uh, spend some of their time in Asia. Mm. Interesting. So you mentioned um, neurosis gets, magnified in california just like because there's a lot of people that aren't americans listening to this what how does that work what do you mean by that just briefly because I'm, I'm kind of interested to to understand the mechanism behind that uh with regard to california in particular i'm not exactly sure why it is but um you know there's the like frank zappa song you know california's got the most of them <laughs> so it's it's just for some reason there's just more um more insanity running rampant in places like San Francisco than in the average place. Maybe it's like um, just a Mecca for crazies or something. I'm not sure exactly why it is. But with regard to like a spiritual center, um, I don't think Sigmund Freud necessarily knew everything that he was talking about. But I do think that he was uh, onto something when he was saying that repressed desires don't just disappear. They stay in the subconscious and, and just build up pressure until they finally come percolating up to the surface in the form of neurotic symptoms. Mm-hmm. And that's like a spiritual life really is just more repressed than the average civilized city dweller. So some spiritual people can be really um, sort of hysterical, which I assume is why those medieval uh, Catholic saints were having uh, visions of the vision of the the Virgin Mary and seeing the devil and hearing the voice of God and all that all the time. Mm. Interesting. <sighs> yeah, God's own fool. Did you have something you wanted to say? Sorry, I cut you off there before. Oh, that's okay. I was uh, <clears throat> getting into the Burma part, but I'm interested actually. Um, do you think the hysterical part that you were saying, like saints and and people? being more hysterical than the common person is just also could be the fact that you're dealing with something that the common person never deals with as far as, you know, this sort of a spiritual focus, you know, or this inward look. So you're, you're, you're looking at all these demons that are within yourself and they, you know, you know, man, it may be manifest as visions or, uh, you know, uh, different neurotic habits sort of play out just as you deal with those sort of things with the inward gaze being so intense all the time with meditation and contemplation. Um, yeah, I think there is at least two different levels to that. I mean, there's like the the level that I was just talking about, just any kind of repressed desires. You're following rules and, you know, you're, you're eating one meal a day and having minimal sleep and everything. So that's going to be putting a certain pressure on you. And also, yeah, I assume like through meditation, you're becoming aware of parts of your mind that most people aren't aware of. You know, you're, you're bringing the subconscious up into consciousness. And yeah, there's, there's, there can be all sorts of strange things there that you just don't know how to deal with because you've never consciously dealt with it before. It was just all sort of like habit and automatic, you know, down below the surface somewhere. Or at least even if it wasn't automatic, at least your conscious, rational thinking mind wasn't dealing with it and then all of a sudden there's this new stuff that you've never dealt with before that can really put an extra 
um, an extra amount of stress on you. But anybody that's been to a lot of meditation retreats know that uh, a lot of people can they just crack up at these things. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've been in session a couple of times because I, I kind of practice Zen, I guess. And uh, yeah, people do lose it. And I must admit during my first um, session, it was confronting. I wouldn't say I completely lost it, but definitely it puts you in some weird states of mind. You go, you go to some weird places uh, for sure. Um, yeah. So just in terms of um, you're talking about neurosis and bringing those neurotic character structures uh, to consciousness, I guess, um, do you think there's something to the argument that like Westerners in general are just way more neurotic than people say in Burma who may not suffer from the same, uh, how would you say, like irrational character flaws at all? I used to think when I was living in Burma that Americans tend to be like uh, just neurotic as hell, whereas a Burmese villager is like a happy, harmless psychotic. <laughs> so everybody's crazy. I mean, Buddhist philosophy says, you know, anybody who isn't fully enlightened is going to be insane to some degree. And so we're all nuts. But uh, the kind of insanity is different from like a so-called civilized Western technologically advanced society and some relatively natural village society. Hmm. Yeah. So there's going to be differences. Definitely. Yeah. So the Buddhist path, would you think that it's, it's easier for a Burmese person or I don't know, a person that lives in that kind of simpler context to embrace? Like, do you find that Westerners have trouble um, with, with the, I suppose the relative simplicity of Buddhism and Buddhist practice? Some parts of it are easier for Easterners and some parts of it are easier for Westerners. Like, like a villager, a Burmese villager who just doesn't think very much can go into relatively deep samadhi fairly easily. You know, they don't have the compulsive thinking mind that's preventing them from getting into deep meditative states. Mm -hmm. So there is that. But on the other hand, um, Burmese people they have like a medieval attitude towards their religion. They just believe all of it and they're very dogmatic and just being locked into this dogma can be a handicap. Mm. Mm. But on the other hand, a Westerner can be so skeptical that he just never gets beyond lukewarmness because he, he can never fully believe in anything. So there's that too. It depends on the person, I suppose. Mm. And once you get to, got to uh, Burma, Ponte, uh, did you have to spend time with a certain monastery for a certain amount of period or like under a teacher before? Because I know, and we'll get to this, that you, you know, spent extensive time in the forest alone. But did yeah. you have to, before you went out like that, did you have to like spend a certain amount of time in a uh, monastery? Well, according to the rules of monastic discipline, a junior monk has to be live in dependence upon a senior teacher for at least five years. And then after he's, um, he's lived in dependence for at least five years and knows the stuff that a monk is supposed to know, you know, like, you know, how to meditate and, and he has to know the rules of, of discipline and this sort of thing, then he can go and live alone. So I was uh, relatively extremely strict, especially in my younger days. So I wanted to follow all the rules correctly. So yeah, I, I took that seriously that uh, I would live in dependence on, on a teacher for five years. And then after I got my five years, I pretty much just took off into the forest. Okay, cool. 
and how did that how did that like what were the mechanics of that just the idea of like to me it sounds so far out to like you know be living under a roof and everything like i've been to you know some Theravada monasteries you know under a roof comfortable maybe you have a kuti to say i'm gonna go wander the land or i'm gonna go just like literally live in a cave how, what was that like how, how how did that happen i don't know i find that interesting well um one of the main inspirations for me more or less converting to theravada buddhism was reading the sutta nipata which is an old collection of of buddhist texts and it probably includes like some of the oldest buddhist texts in existence like the fourth chapter of it, the Ataka Waga, may be the, the oldest Buddhist document in existence, as far as I know. And it came from a, a very early time when monks just weren't living in monasteries. The, like the average Buddhist monk was just this homeless wanderer, just tough as wood, completely fearless, which was something that I really liked. It was uh, sort of a, a way of uh, machismo without punching people. You know, I mean, you can you can like fulfill your masculinity without having to to get in bar brawls or 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 kill anybody or that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, it was so I'd be sitting there in this there was this little cave I lived in at the monastery and it was uncomfortable as hell. But still, I'd be reading these, you know, these idealized accounts of how a monk is supposed to live where he's just completely fearless and going out alone into the forest, you know, going alone like the horn of the rhinoceros and everything. And just knowing where I was going to sleep that night, knowing where I was going to get my next meal, it caused me to feel like I just wasn't doing it right. Or I just felt kind of you know, ashamed, like I was uh, kind of cheating or something. But then again, I found that uh, you're living in a, an Asian military dictatorship that just wandering around doesn't work very well. I tried that once. I tried walking from, from Rangoon all to a town near Mandalay, which was maybe 400 mile walk. And I made it maybe 35 miles before I was arrested by the the secret police and interrogated and <laughs> and sent sent back. You know, for my they were concerned for my safety. You know, quote unquote. Right. So yeah. I found that if I was going to wander around homeless, I was going to have to go way the hell out into the sticks. You know, I wasn't going to be able to walk by the side of the road or anything like that. So I just started looking for you know relatively deep forest areas where I could uh, where I could live and practice, which is nice. Although in, in the tropics, like in Burma, if you find real forest, you're going to find real malaria too. So there was also that. So, so that tradition in Theravada of um, having forest dwellers, and I think in, in ancient India, they call them forest dwellers and city dwellers or something. Originally, I was reading some research on that. Is that where that tradition comes from? Because I, I believe because of the wet season originally, that's why the forest dwellers would go out for six months or whatever and then during the monsoon they would come back into the city or i i read somewhere that that was the origin of um this kind of tradition of forest dwellers and city dwellers or monastic monks i'm not, not sure if that yeah. makes sense but <laughs> yeah yeah according to the rules of monastic discipline a monk is supposed to stay in one place during three months of the monsoon season right right okay. so yeah that i assume was like the beginning of established monasteries and then some some monks would just uh you know they didn't like the wandering around homeless part so much and so they would start staying at the monastery and then they would begin you know that's that's where the monks that really weren't 
into attaining enlightenment in this very life might be inclined to stay, you know, the comfortable place in, in town or near town. And, um, you know, then they become teachers or they specialize in chanting and memorizing texts and this sort of thing, which in a way is kind of necessary. But, uh, um, yeah, it did cause a kind of um, not exactly the schism, but there was sort of like two it sort of polarized the Sangha into, you know, the city monks and the, the forest monks. Hmm. Interesting. To some degree. Can you describe for us maybe one of your uh, first forest dwellings or, you know, uh, one of the first places you were staying in a, in a, in a forest? Was it under a tree? Uh, was it a cave? What was the accommodation? Well, the first place where I stayed was, uh, it was called Tongpulu Chaltsindoya, which is called a forest monastery, but actually is more like a desert monastery. It was just like blazing hot wastelands of, of central Burma, semi-desert. And there was just a little man-made cave there in the, dug into the side of a hill, like just eight feet by eight feet by eight feet. And it was like, um, I hope you'll forgive me for uh, using Fahrenheit, but it was about 20 degrees cooler inside the cave than outside, which, um, you know, once 115 degrees outside, it's still 95 inside, but still at least it's survivable. So I lived there. And um, when I first got to Burma, I didn't speak English or I didn't speak Burmese and nobody there spoke English. So there was one monk there who had had some schooling. And so he and I were communicating in broken poly for about a year until um, finally the, the abbot there who was concerned for me he sent me to a big school monastery near Mandalay. And so I, I spent a little over a year there learning Burmese and a few other things. And then after that, I took off to a place called Thibet Aindoya, where I spent like two and a half months living on top of a big flat rock under a tree on the side of a hill. So, yeah. Just, and then just, it started... no, no covering at all, just a tree? Uh, yeah, the tree was my my covering. At least it was good for shade, but I learned that uh, at least some trees are worthless as uh, roofs when it rains because it just collects the raindrops into big drips and it, it all comes down just the same. And just quickly, for all the uh, Australians listening, 115 Fahrenheit is 46 degrees uh, Celsius, which is outrageous. <laughs> yeah, and it gets hotter than that too. Yeah, wow, wow. Yeah, the it's hard for a, uh, a white chap, especially, you know, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah. The heat was, that was one of the main reasons why I eventually just uh, had to uh, leave Burma, I think. I was just got tired of, of sweating all the time. And it wasn't really feeling hot that was the problem. It was just not being able to stop sweating. You know, it's like anything you touch gets sweaty and then it's, yeah, anything you lean back against gets sweaty and, so, yeah, that was, it was just sort of, uh, um, not exactly depressing, but, um, it was just like this chronic discomfort that I was having to, to deal with. And the, and the Burmese, they're, they're like genetically, or they're just acclimated to it. So, um, you know, they're fine, you know, they're coming to see me fully clothed and everything. And I'm just like bare chested and half dead. <laughs> So what, one of the things you just described was um, having issues communicating with the other monks. And you said you just spoke to them in broken Sanskrit, <laughs> um, which is full on. Um, my understanding is traditionally the reason the Buddha got together, the Sangha, was so the monks could kind of support one another and, 
and uh, uh, how would you say, like, uh, help one another resist certain temptations and that kind of thing. Um, mm. Did you get that once you learned Burmese? Like, did the Burmese monks kind of accept you or like, how, how did that work out um, in the end? Um, the Burmese monks accepted me mainly because I was a foreigner. You know, I was like the rare and exotic foreign monk. Right. And so to some degree, I got special allowances. I got away with stuff that a Burmese monk wouldn't be able to get away with. So, I mean, I could be like really strict. And a lot of Burmese monks, I mean, a lot of monasteries, if you're really strict and you're just another Burmese monk, you'll just you'll be seen as a troublemaker. You know, you're just trying to make the other monks look bad or something. And so, you know, they get pressured out. But I had like special privileges because I was the rare and exotic uh, Western monk. But as a general rule, I avoided monasteries. As soon as I had enough seniority to go out on my own, I pretty much just preferred staying by myself and avoided other monks and staying at monasteries whenever whenever that was uh, possible. Mm. Interesting. So, so did you forge any friendships with other monks while you were there? Like, I, I guess you must have, right? Like, there were, um, yeah, yeah. I made some friends, and, especially at the big school monastery. I made some good friends, and um, uh, I made a few other friends, a few Western friends. Although, um, you know, they would come and go. Everything is impermanent, and uh, most monks don't stay in robes their entire life. So, you know, this, uh, they just disappear. You don't know what happened to them or, or something like that would happen or, or else they just say, you know, I gotta go, gotta go back to the States and take care of my mother or something like that. And then you don't hear, you don't hear from them ever again. Interesting. Didn't you have one, uh, another Western, I don't remember if he was an American or not monk, but I remember you mentioning one time who, uh, was quite a character and, and, and lived in a tree or something or oh yeah yeah he was from texas and that's right was, texas that word was in my head texas too, yeah he was he was ordained in the same tradition as me he was he was much mm-hmm. senior to me like maybe 10 years senior to me and he was held up as the role model he was sort of like my role model because he was just fanatically strict like um there are extra ascetic practices that a monk is allowed to practice in addition to just following the rules of monastic discipline, they're called Dutanga. And he tried to follow all of them at the strictest level. And at one point, it was just so much that he, he cracked up and had to be sent back to America. He could hardly, I mean, they just pretty much had to put him on the plane because he was so out of it. But then as soon as, as soon as he recovered and was feeling fine again, he just came right back to Asia and was reordained as a monk again. But um, one one thing with him is he was trying so hard that I don't think he was really following the middle path. You know, most people, you know, there's the, the middle path in Buddhism between the two extremes of like self-torture and just, you know, self-indulgence. And most people veer off on the self-indulgence side, but he was veering off on the self-torture side, just trying too hard. You know, his strings were too tight. He couldn't play good music because the strings were too tight. And so he eventually just got uh, disillusioned and dropped out. But deep down, he still wanted to live a spiritual life. So he was just like a, a non-denominational ascetic at the time that he was living in the in the big hollow banyan tree. It was a nice tree, though. <laughs> yeah. What, how, how, so it was a hollow of a tree that he was living in. Yeah, yeah. It was a huge banyan tree. with uh, It was like this hollow place inside that was uh, maybe three meters long and, I don't know, a meter and a half wide. Is, is he still there as far as you know? Or? 
he's he's getting pretty old now and last i heard he was staying in rangoon there was uh there were some supporters of the tongpulu tradition in which i was ordained that uh, they just built like this structure in one of in the yard of one of them just for in case any monks came to town they could they could live there and so uh, he just kind of moved in there when he when he got old, and also his tree started becoming unlivable because there were so many chicken farms around the tree that it just stank of chicken shit all the time. So, oh. yeah, so he had to find a different place to live. Oh, okay. How does um how does Waratu fit into all this? Is he in the same school you were in, the uh, world famous monk? anti-muslim monk uh yeah he's not in the same tradition as me i don't even know what tradition he was ordained into i think he is probably like a scholar monk okay and at the first i ever heard of him was a long time ago um there's another uh meditation teacher called tanjidong seattle and um i went to tanjidong seattle's i went to one of his retreats and uh they had high hopes for me because i was like the first foreigner or the first westerner to attend this new retreat center. And it turned out that his meditation technique was largely based on hyperventilation. Mm-hmm. And people would just be crap. I mean, they'd just be snapping. They'd be like howling like dogs and, and like crying and laughing uncontrollably and just flopping around on the floor and everything. And he thought that this was a sign of some kind of real progress. And, um, yeah, I just, I just, I was tried to tell him, you know, what, what's happening is they're just getting drunk on too much oxygen, <laughs> but, uh, he was just amused by that. You know, it's all these Western barbarians, the strange ideas they get. But um, I, when I, after that, I was kind of vindicated because I heard that there had been a young Burmese monk who had written a book against this same Tanjidong Seattle. And uh, it was called Dharma War, Dharma Warfare or Dharma Battle or something like that. But it was the, the purpose of the book was to denounce this, this monk and his meditation and everything. And it turned out, years later that it was the same Uwirathu who wrote that book. So he's been kind of pugnacious from the beginning, you know, he's been confrontational and, uh, um, yeah, he's, he's, he's really puts himself out there, but, um, like a fender of the fender of the Dharma, kind of like something evil, uh, inquisitor. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's sort of like the, the front man of this movement of Buddhists who want Burma to remain a predominantly Buddhist country. You know, they, they, they have this awareness that, uh, that Muslims, when they're, you know, in, in small numbers, they can make good neighbors and they get along fine and there's no problem. But once they reach a certain critical mass, they start becoming intolerant. Hmm. And so um, there's a lot of Burmese people who are that way. And a lot of Burmese people just really going with uh, the vulgar terms tossed around by leftists nowadays. I mean, they really are kind of racist. You know, they're like Burmese supremacists or something. They consider being Burmese to be the greatest thing there is, you know. So, um, yeah, a lot of people agree with um, that movement, the 969 movement, and don't want Muslims to be uh, becoming, um, you know, even more of a, of a presence than they already are, in, especially in the Burmese or the, the Buddhist areas of Burma. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So uh, just yeah. quickly on that, I, I always wondered, like, how, how does Buddhism, if you're a Buddhist in Burma, and obviously there's been violence and that kind of thing, for your average Joe, and I know a monk can't com- commit violence, but how, how 
how do they frame that theologically? Like, how do they justify that kind of action, which would seem out of line with Buddhist morality, I guess? Well, they're, they're not really advocating violence, as far as I know. They're just saying, you know, we don't want Muslims to be taking over our country. And then it's like the, the government and the army is doing most of the violence. You know, the monks, I, I assume every once in a while you've got some uh, monks that just aren't very strict. And, and most Asian monks really are not extremely strict anyway. So um, I'm not exactly sure what their arguments would be to justify getting involved in that other than just, uh, you know, their sincere desire for Burma to remain predominantly Buddhist. But, um, yeah, I think the, the serious monks are not advocating violence. They're just uh, advocating the idea that Burma is, is best if it's uh, left predominantly Buddhist. And then it's like um, the lay people, especially the, the government and the, the army, the military, that's uh, actually resorting to to violence although of course there's violence on both sides you know there's like militant groups of the uh the the rohingya what liberation army or something i don't know what they're called interesting um so just to go back to the uh, monastic uh you know uh, discipline that we were kind of talking about before i i was kind of interested to understand like on a day-to-day basis what what did your life consist of so in terms of meditation how much time did you dedicate to that uh, reading scripture, you know, et cetera. Like, what did the average day kind of look like? What was the, the well, purpose? The average day, let's see, I'd wake up probably before dawn and then meditate until it was time to get up and walk to the village to get my bowl of food, which was usually early in the morning, partly because the villagers are farmers and they get up early, and also partly because I wanted to get there and back before the sun was very high in the sky just so I wouldn't be drenched in sweat by the time I got back. Mm. So then I'd eat and then um, even just one meal a day, you know, it, it can take up, you know, a couple hours of your day or, or more than that if you have to walk a long way. And then, um, you know, if I was being conscientious, I'd be trying to walk mindfully and go for, you know, do everything mindfully, you know, mindfulness of everyday activities. You know, if when you, you stretch the bowl forth to accept food, you do it mindfully, you know, and you accept the food mindfully and all this. And then, uh, yeah, especially like my first 10 years as a monk, I wouldn't be surprised at all if I was averaging maybe six hours a day of meditation. And uh, sometimes... Uh, I'd, I'd read a lot too. I'm sort of addicted to reading, but uh, um, yeah, I, I did a lot of meditation. That was like the main point of it. Yeah. And then, uh, um, you know, if there's anything else that has to be done, you know, there's all these things that you have to do, you know, chop wood, carry water, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. So how did it work? Did you do, like, I know in Zazen, um, for example, you would probably sit for, you know, an hour, probably max, and then split it up throughout the day or did you tend to do like long meditations just for hours or you know for for a longer time period of time well i was never able to sit cross-legged for like a really long time right that's the trouble i, was, I, I have trying, too yeah yeah <laughs> i was trying to to do full lotus all the time too and so um and also um just by nature i'm not a good meditator i've got like this nervous hyperactive mind so um a lot of the time when my mind was being restless, I'd do better doing walking meditation anyway. So that's, that's the way if I was doing like intensive meditation practice, I would 
sit for an hour or however long I sat. And then, you know, you mindfully get up, trying not to break the concentration too much, and then just start walking back and forth for maybe another half hour or an hour until your legs are kind of stretched out again and you can take some more cross-legged sitting hmm. and just go back and forth between walking and sitting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It sounds a lot like session, really. I mean, um, in, in many ways. Yeah, it's not yeah. so different. Yeah, Zen Buddhism is, is in a way, is kind of trying to return to the original spirit in, in some respects. Hmm. And in some respects, I think it, it does so better than Orthodox Theravada does now. Okay. Um, Ante, any uh, sort of meditative insights or experiences that you had in your many years of meditating in the forest that you can share or like any meditative experience? I know monks aren't supposed to share some things, but is there anything that you can share from there, from that experience? Yeah, yeah. I I had lots of lots of experiences and insights. It's like sometimes if if you... uh, you get into like a really deep meditative state, which has happened with me um, a number of times where you're just sitting there with your mind just wide awake and just silent and clear like glass, where you're just sitting there wide awake and not thinking anything. You can get this, it's sort of like we were talking about earlier, there's these energies deep inside you that you're usually not exposed to, which all of a sudden is just gushing through you. And, um, so a situation, yeah, I've, I've had times like that where um, just five minutes of it, maybe 30 seconds of it is just well worth 20 years of struggling and floundering and sweating in a foreign country. You just have no doubt whatsoever. This is, this is worth all of that. Or there was one time where um, I just spontaneously, I was having some really good meditation you know, it was just like spontaneous mindfulness. I'm down at the well and I'm pulling the rope, you know, to, to bring the bucket up the well, you know. And it's just like you feel the wind on your skin and you feel the, the rope, you know, the, against your hands and just the muscles of your arms as you're working. You're just, you're just like hyper aware of pretty much everything that's going on. And during that time, I was... One time I was going down this flight of, of stone steps down the side of this hill because I lived in this cave up on the top of a hill and the, the, the bathhouse and everything was down below, like the well and everything. So I'd go down there to take a bath and fetch water and that sort of thing. And as I'm walking down these stone steps, I start getting like really intense stomach cramps. And it's like I'm just doubled over in pain, which meant that I probably ate some bad shrimp curry or something earlier that day. And so I'm contemplating, yeah, I'm going to be making emergency trips to the outhouse tonight. And, um, and then it starts raining and I didn't know it was going to start raining and I didn't have an umbrella or anything. So it's like my only lower robe is getting wet. And then anyone who saw my face would just think I was dying because I'm just doubled over in pain. And I'm, and also I'm just contemplating that I'm going to be wearing a wet robe the next day. Cause it's, it's, I'm getting rained on now. And all of a sudden it was just like, there was this click and it was like, the center of my consciousness wasn't, you know, at the surface anymore, but it was like the center of my awareness was like down in deep water and I could look up and I could see all the commotion and stuff going on at the surface, you know, the being doubled over in pain and everything, but it was just uh, like waves on the surface way up there. And I was down in the cool depths where everything was still. And 
there's this awareness that that is always there. It's just we're usually just oblivious to it because we're so identified with all the commotion and stuff that's going on, you know, our thoughts, our intellect and all that. But that that deep stillness, that hyper awareness that's even more conscious than the conscious thinking mind, it's always there. You know, you can just feel that it's always there. And so I was it was such a profound experience that I was practically weeping with joy while at the same time anybody who saw my face might think that i was dying from these abdominal cramps that i was having but that kind of thing can happen i mean if you're really going for it even if you're not yeah. really going for it sometimes i mean some people it just hits them accidentally like i guess eckhart tolla he, he had his experience just completely accidentally yeah yeah that that um Something that's there always that you don't like have access to is interesting to me because I've heard you mention before and then, uh, you know, Buddhism, especially Theravada Buddhism is always very big in the not self. And this kind of gets me into the idea of like, what is there that's always there and Nirvana and ultimate reality, you know? So if, you know, an Orthodox Theravada, it's, you know, there's no self, there's no soul, that's for sure. But, you know, in Mahayana, you have the idea of the Buddha nature that's in you, or in Hinduism, the Atman, you know, that yeah. you're yeah, you got reuniting the... with, or Neoplatonism, the, the good, the one, you know, yeah. you're, you, your higher self that you've... Yeah, like the Dharmakaya into, or something. It's always there. Yes, it's like that. So, I mean, to me, in... And even in Theravada text, I get that feeling. I, I, I get a sense of that, even though it's kind of denied, isn't it? In the um, Orthodox Theravada yeah. or what would yeah, you well, say? It's, I, or it's I think left that, kind of kind of a more like kind of just like not explained, perhaps. Maybe that's the word, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty clear to me that what the Buddhists are calling nirvana or nibbana and what the like the, the Vedantists are calling Brahman are really, I mean, they're both trying to describe the same state that's completely unthinkable and beyond comprehension. But it seems to me that ultimate reality is just completely off the scale. You know, it transcends duality. So you can't really say that it exists and you can't really say that it doesn't exist. And going with Buddhist logic, you can't say that it does and doesn't exist. And you can't say that it neither does nor doesn't exist. It's like completely off the scale. You, you just can't, you can't, uh, you can't grasp it. So the, the way the human mind works, I mean, you have to deal with dualities like human language. I mean, you have to pick is or isn't, even though neither one of them really applies in this case, because you're dealing with this ultimate reality that's just totally off the scale. So it's completely outside of samsara. So the Buddhists um, conveniently adopt the, the error of, of saying isn't and just say that nirvana is cessation you know, emptiness, voidness, this kind of thing. And then the, like, the Hindus and pretty much every other theistic uh, spiritual system goes with is and calls it God or, you know, Brahman or Tao or, or something like that. But uh, it's really just um, two different, it's like a dilemma where you have to choose, you have to choose one of these two options and neither one of them really applies because but that's just the way human language and just the the thought process of the samsaric mind works right sort of a negative like the 
I mean, the, the the Buddhist one appeals to me more, but I think when some people get so dogmatic, because it's sort of like a, it's like a apophatic or negative theology of the self. You know what I mean? You you work your way to it by denying what's not the self. You know, what not yeah. what what is not Nirvana? What is not? You know, you're you're knocking away, and that sort of that appeals to me. And I think that is probably the um, the distinction. But I you know some some like really orthodox-minded Theravadans, you know, if you hint towards like some sort of ultimate self or grain of nirvana that might be within us, get take umbrage to that, you know. Uh, yeah, and um, like the Burmese, they're they're just heavily sold on Abhidhamma philosophy, which is this massive, immense scholastic philosophy that puts aristotle to shame you know it's like their theory of everything but it's all dogmatic it's all words and books and most of it you couldn't really prove it through your own experience anyway but um yeah as a theravadan i'm not i'm I'm not orthodox i don't i don't have much use for abhidhamma most western monks don't but so i i have a lot of respect for nagarjuna you know just this radical i mean he was really a radical where he just um, just tears down everything, leaving his own philosophy for last, and then his own philosophy tears itself down, and then you're just, you're just left with emptiness. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, do you, so a, a Zen teacher of mine, um, he talks a lot about awareness, and actually I, I did have him on you know, a couple of months ago where he, he gave like a really interesting perspective on it. But in his view, uh, the way he described it, uh, Buddhism is a way of effectively becoming aware that awareness is always there and that awareness is almost separate from the individual in some sense. I'm probably not doing him justice here, but you spoke a little bit before about awareness. Um, do you think these states that people try to describe, like even Nagarjuna, that ultimate state is just ultimate awareness that is always there anyway? Um, yeah, well, it's, it's like I said, where, I mean, you just can't put it into words. Once you put it into words, that's not it anymore, but we just do the best we can. Cause that's what we're dealing with is words. Mm. But, um, yeah, it's like, like Brahman, sometimes in the Upanishads, Brahman is simply described as infinite consciousness. And, uh, I think that's actually a good, a good translation. Like if I were going to translate, if I were going to interpret God, you know, then like capital G God. Yeah, I, I might uh, be willing to accept the existence of such a God if it were defined as just absolute infinite consciousness. Mm-hmm. Interesting. On a, on a practical level, um, I remember after doing a session once for, I think it was eight days, um, getting into the car and driving to the airport afterwards was a completely different experience. And I felt nothing like what you you were talking about, but to some degree, I felt much more aware of everything I was doing in the sense that the the activities that I typically take for granted and I'm not entirely conscious of became immensely pleasurable. And I'm not sure if it's just a feature of not being able to do anything for eight days, but it really felt like, like I had more awareness and more grasp of everything around me at any one time. And everything became... A lot more, uh, you know, amazing. I guess it's the only way I can kind of describe it. Um, mm-hmm. And and it kind of made me think about 
this kind of modern obsession with with awareness training, how people kind of try to train awareness like it's a muscle. And that whole notion just became totally absurd to me, just in terms of how people meditate and they use these meditation apps. And it's, it's kind of like almost going to a gym for these people. Um, did you have any comments yeah. on that? I mean, how would you look at that? Is, is that the your mo- experience of awareness? mindfulness movement. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, like at the beginning of meditation, it is, um, I mean, you're, you're going to be dealing with relatively crude states. And so, I mean, if that's where a person is at when they start meditating, then that's what they have to work with. So, yeah, I don't think there's necessarily anything wrong with that. Although if, if one is meditating well, then uh, eventually one's going to transcend that and go beyond the, the whole idea of like perceiving an object. Like with regard to mindfulness practice, like Satipatthana mindfulness practice, um, you start off, you know, you're, you're focusing your attention on an object and you're even labeling it. You know, you're like maybe silently like slapping a name onto it, you know, like breathing in, breathing out or whatever it is, you know, itching or, or remembering or whatever. And then gradually as your mind becomes clearer and, and quieter, then you still can focus on the object, but you're not putting the label on it anymore. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do that anymore. And then gradually, if you, if you go beyond that, then eventually you're not even focusing on it and on any object in particular anymore. Your mind just becomes like a, like a, a plate glass window or a mirror or something where there's still something there maybe, but it, you're not focusing on it to the exclusion of everything else. It's just all there um, of its own accord, this nature taking its course. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems to be like the deeper you get, the more all-encompassing that it becomes, right? That's, that's what I kind of noticed. So I, I've done similar things to Maha Satipatthana, and I've been working through that text a little bit. But, but what I notice is it, it seems to just increase my awareness of things at any one time. That's what I've noticed. Yeah. That's the effect I'm getting from it. Yeah, it can. I have kind of a weird story about what you were talking about earlier about uh, the uh, the eight days of not doing anything, and mm-hmm. then you come out and everything's like brighter and and more vivid and yeah and uh, yeah. And I think anybody who goes through a, a meditation retreat notices that. And I was talking about that to a friend of mine when I was in Burma, and he was an American monk too, and he was kind of a cynic. He, he had been in like in a punk rock band or something like that before he became a monk. But um, he was saying that he experienced something similar once where he was at this monastery and found this huge pile of old Time and Newsweek magazines. So he was just like locked in his room for days and days, just going through all these Time and Newsweek magazines. And then when he finally came out into the bright sunshine, it was the same kind of a deal. You know, it was for him, it was just sort of like um, sensory deprivation or something just made him gave him like a heightened sensitivity to everything around him. So, um, yeah, I think it could be a combination of both where, you know, you're cultivating like a a heightened state of awareness anyway, if you're meditating. Plus I assume just the sensory deprivation aspect would be part of it too. Mm. Yeah. It it all becomes new again in a way. Like if, because if, again, if you're like focusing inward, so if you're meditating, you're, you're sort of hyper-focused on your, meditation you know your meditation object or your breath or in a very regimented lifestyle but also if you become 
obsessed with Time Life magazines. You know, still, still, you're very concentrated. You know, I can see how that. I mean, that sort of happened. If you've ever, it made me laugh because I was thinking about that. I've had sort of, and I, I thought how reading is. I don't know to say reading is meditative, but I've, I've definitely got into like a zone in actually just reading, to where like I feel almost kind of giddy and high afterwards, and everything is kind of like that too. So that made me laugh because uh I've, I've kind of felt like that but i think it's that hyper focus you know that you have and then when you let go you see there's all these other things out there yeah just about anything can be a meditation yeah. brushing your teeth can be a meditation if you're doing it mindfully mm. hey god's own fool you wanted to talk about notions of nirvana i think you had that on the list do you want to i did and uh yeah we can I, we touched on it a little bit there about nirvana and ultimate reality, but you know, I, you know, and I know in the the Buddhist suttas, like I said, it's sort of a a negative theology per se. But, but is there any more than what you've already said about nirvana that you think you could touch on, uh, Bonte, as far as what uh, what you think it is, or? You know, whatever. What other insights might you have on this mysterious uh, called Nirvana? Yeah, I think the easy explanation of Nirvana for me is that Nirvana is reality. You know, it's like the Kantian thing in itself, as opposed mm -hmm. to the Kantian thing as it seems. We're we're just stuck, all of us, in this samsaric Kantian thing as it seems. You know, we're we're kind of just stuck with perceptions. Perceptions are samsara, but uh, if you if you're able to transcend that or penetrate that and get to ultimate reality then it seems to me that you would be enlightened if you're if you're always there yes perceptions are samsara I like that yeah yeah i really think that too that um you know it's like immanuel Kant. it's 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 easier for me to explain certain things about Buddhism by just referring to Kant to Westerners who maybe are already familiar with Kant. But he had the same two levels of truth. You know, the thing, the thing as it seems, which is just the, the mental symbols that we're conjuring up in order to try to, you know, navigate through, through our, our apparent existence. And then there's the thing as it truly is, you know, the, the, the thing, the thing in itself. And Kant, not being a mystic, apparently believed that uh, human beings just will never have any access to the thing in itself. We're just mm -hmm. stuck. You know, there there is no enlightenment. We're just stuck in Plato's cave. You know, you can't right. escape from Plato's cave. But um, yeah, he wasn't a mystic. And um, there is one thing in itself that we do have access to. And that's the thing in itself of our own consciousness. And I think that's really the ultimate purpose of like yogic meditation to people that really are, you know, doing it at an advanced level, not just stress relief or whatever. But I mean, you're trying to penetrate through the just the symbols, the, the perceptions and get to just the the pure essence of consciousness itself. Then get there and somehow make a connection that stays there that survives death yeah rebirth. yeah well it's like it's like if just going with like a an analogy you say that consciousness is like water then the mental states of your mind would be like waves on the water 
And so most people are just stuck at the level of waves. They don't really notice the water. They just they just are concentrated on this wave and that wave, and I like this wave, and I don't like that wave, and that wave is bigger than this one, and it's moving faster than that one. And they're just, you know, that's their entire mental life is just dealing with the the appearances of the waves, and they never really get into the essence of it. So through meditation, you're stilling the waves. You, you, I mean, it's, it's much harder to confuse the waves with the reality when you've got a flat calm and there are no waves. So right. that's, that's kind of what jhana is for. It's like you, it's like a major insight you can have is you realize that when you're not thinking anything anymore, when your mind is completely still, you're not unconscious. In fact, you're more conscious than you were before. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then, and then it's like Zen talks about like Zen in the marketplace is, is, you know, infinitely better than Zen on the cushion. No, that's because after you have penetrated and are able to perceive the, the, the water as water or a consciousness, you know, at the level of the thing in itself of consciousness, the essence of consciousness, then when the waves come back or the thoughts and the feelings and all that, then if you can maintain the awareness of, of just, water as water then i'm pretty sure that would be what the zen people are calling zen in the marketplace where you know the, all this commotion and stuff is going on but you're not you're not fooled by it anymore you don't right. think that is reality anymore right that's sort of seeing nirvana and samsara maybe if you uh use a mahayana sort of term yeah um would you say you know this might be a tangent and this may or may not have or a divergent sort of train of thought that may or not may or may not go on the podcast but when you were talking about uh kant and perceptions as what we perceive and uh a thing in itself um it made me think about schopenhauer of course who was influenced by kant and i know from talking to you personally that you're a fan of schopenhauer as well yeah i used, to, I used about, to be afraid of becoming a, a schopenhauer though <laughs> yeah, well, I I may be on that I may be on that road myself. But um uh when he talks about the world as a representation, right? That's basically the same thing as world as perception. And the thing in itself for him is the will. But he offers, you know, towards the end of his work, he offers, you know, uh possibility of sort of fighting against the will, a couple different options. Uh, mm-hmm. is you know art uh but interesting you know in in getting involved in in art you know because it doesn't really serve the purpose of the will and also he mentions asceticism yeah denial uh, of the will denial of the will but do you think in his readings i kind of get the feeling that he, though in the end he's more like kant and he doesn't I don't know. Do you do you get in there that there's a, there's a breakthrough that leads to you know some sort of immortality or you know uh, or absorption in the will as the one, or does he see it as just sort of a you know a just a blind will? That's how I, don't, I see it. I don't I don't see that in Schopenhauer. I think um, what Schopenhauer calls the will is comes close to the the Buddhist conception of karma. That it's just like yeah. this force of it's just this momentum of mental energy that's driving you through life. So yeah, I think Schopenhauer saw enlightenment as just uh, 
pretty much the way a lot of old-fashioned Theravadans do is just cessation, where it's just you are denying the will until it just shrivels up and dies, and then you're free because you're not you anymore. It's just you're gone. That seems mm-hmm. that's my interpretation of Schopenhauer. I could be wrong, but that's that uh, seems to be uh, what he was where he was getting at. You're just extinguished, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. He was. He. I think he would see enlightenment as as ex, like extinction, and uh, that is a common. Um, translation into english of the word nirvana also is extinction hmm. right right of course he felt vindicated when he found out about buddhism as it was making its way into europe he actually um i believe the story goes became acquainted with buddhism towards the end of his life and he was like i i think i found the truth then because i, I pretty much measure up in how i've described things which was interesting and i think he even had a dog called uh, atman <laughs> oh nice yeah yeah little known story and i think he, he also had a, a tibetan buddhist uh statue of the buddha i'm pretty sure in his house at the time having yeah. said that cool. uh he did get annoyed with one of his female neighbors and tried to kick her down the stairs and kill her allegedly so i guess uh yeah it's probably debatable yeah. how much he took on but uh <laughs> yeah yeah he was he was not an enlightened being that's why i said earlier that i used to be afraid of becoming like a schopenhauer who had really profound thoughts but he was really a nasty guy you know his personality was was very unenlightened personality cantankerous yeah. sort of fellow yeah and he, yeah. he like hired people to look through foreign newspapers to find any sign that he was becoming famous and he just hated hegel's guts and <laughs> made no secret of that if you if you look up hegel in the index of the world is will and representation every single reference to hegel is schopenhauer just bashing away at him he yeah. really did not like hegel at all he, he even called him i mean just uh beyond he thought he was just an an idiot like I, I remember reading him just insulting his looks you know he just he was just he was just An like intellectual on Taliban. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i was told by a hungarian uh philosophy student that schopenhauer actually coined new words in the in the, the german language just to bash hegel <laughs> interesting yeah, I, I always thought that one of the biggest shortcomings of Western philosophy, I guess, but particularly that German strain of philosophy, is that they don't they don't account for the body. So it's just like a almost like a work of pure intellect, but they don't offer any way out. Like there was, uh, you know, in Eastern mysticism, you have the yogas and meditation and stuff like that. No, I always yeah. felt like it, because it's a construction of pure intellect, it's just, I don't know, it can only really lead to nihilism because it doesn't offer any way out, I guess, or way of dealing with it. And, and I think the reason they don't offer that is because they didn't take it, uh, the body into account. I mean, I don't know what you think about that. It's just kind of something I've been thinking about. Yeah, it is possible. Although, yeah, I've also noticed that Western philosophy generally avoids any kind of actual, uh, like a yogic system. I mean, that was more the the uh, responsibility of religion in the West. Whereas in the East, there was really no dichotomy of philosophy and religion. Um, maybe maybe in a few cases, like the Charvaka materialists in India or something. But uh, for the most part, philosophy and religion were just uh, like a unity. So, yeah, I think in the, in the West, for, for whatever reason, they're just trying, maybe because of the influence of the Greeks, they're just trying to reach perfection through um, 
heightened intellect or something like that. Yeah. Do you think that leads anywhere useful ultimately? Uh, maybe. I, I suppose so. I think, like, like with Kant, in Kant can be useful just because you know he's saying that you can't really know reality, so you just it's good to, just to know the limitations of the instrument, mm. you know. And I think that's that's valuable to know your own limitations, because a lot of people they just they just seem to assume that they don't have limitations or the intellect is capable of understanding everything, at least potentially, and. Um, yeah, so I think that sort of, of philosophy, a little bit of skepticism, I think that can be useful. Mm. But um, yeah, with regard to most Western philosophy, I, I'd have to agree that it, uh, um, it's just kind of an intellectual exercise, mm. kind of like learning like calculus or something. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I, I kind of, I get the feeling after reading one of those giant books that i'm just kind of like all right okay good now what <laughs> you know that's yeah that's kind of the feeling i get now what um you've described it apparently okay good um so yeah. what i feel um i feel that ancient philosophy may have been different though ancient greek philosophy I, whether or not they had any sort of yogic systems i i do think it was uh more than just an intellectual exercise for some of them and that yeah just me thinking that but i'm not i know i'm not the only one who thinks that yeah i think the uh, pythagoreans had some kind of uh yogic practice that they were doing and i think mm -hmm. like plotinus um i mean he was obviously a mystic so he had um some way of attaining his states i don't think they yeah. just happened accidentally yeah he describes them yeah in, in detail and then of course the ones that came after plotinus were you know in the theurgy and things but even even Plato, if you look at the dialogues closely, there are some things in there that could be described as, you know, spiritual exercises and contemplations and whatnot, you know, yeah. perhaps, you know, yeah, it's, I suppose all, you it's all use, rather mysterious. But. You could use an idea as like a, like an object of, of meditation, I suppose. Mm -hmm. so, I know someone yeah, who it does. Yeah, would depend on individual. I was, I was mentioned that the other day. I actually know a uh, platonic uh, contemplative. Uh, oh, nice. But I don't know. Uh, he tries to explain it to me. I, I just, I don't really, uh, it doesn't really work for me, though. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm, not, I'm not real sold on the idea of ideas, for one thing. But uh, Yeah. Yeah, they say, I've, I've heard it said that uh, everybody is either a, a Platonist or an Aristotelian, but I really don't have much use for either one of them. Oh, yeah. You don't, uh, have the uh, Aristotelian idea of essence and of essence. I can't say that word all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, that, I think it's it's really driven the Western way of looking at things, right? That kind of essence that everything has this inherent essence. But you know, Buddhism would suggest otherwise, right? Like there is no inherent um, form or essence. Well, I would say that uh, essence would just be, I mean, there's just one essence, you know, sort of like uh, the Upanishads are saying Brahman is, is the one true essence, you know, or even like a, um, a theist, maybe like St. John of the Cross or somebody would say, you know, the spirit of God is just the one true essence that pervades the entire universe and everything else is just, you know, appearances. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So he actually had a, and you wanted to talk to this, um, the new God's own fool, but just about St. John of the Cross. So you're fairly well acquainted well, with his writings. 
I believe. Uh, yeah, and I like Christian mysticism in general. And like, uh, although I, my default kind of position far as beliefs and metaphysics goes is, is rather Theravadan Buddhist. If, if I could, if I could pick my own beliefs and be a true believer, I'd like to be a Christian mystic, <laughs> but I just don't quite fully believe. <laughs> but yeah. that being said, uh, I, I know that you're well familiar with St. John of the Cross and, uh, I've heard you, um, speak about him on other occasions and his, uh, meditative attainments, you know, and, and what he seems to be describing seems to parallel, you know, the jhanas and everything, the whole, his whole, you know, ascent of Mount Carmel and everything. Yeah, yeah, I think going with Buddhist jargon, he would be a master of fourth jhana. Oh, wow. I think he was really a meditation master. Can you... Although the, the Christians have their own ways of explaining things, so it would be, uh, he'd explain things differently just within the context of Christianity just because that's the the dogma that he was uh, supplied but um, yeah I think he would have made an excellent Buddhist can you describe what the fourth jhana is and maybe how that relates to what St. John of the Cross is describing uh, well the Christians call it high contemplation and it's like mm -hmm. when when one of uh, St. John of the Cross's instructions for meditation is just uh dismiss everything from your mind that is not God. So you can't imagine God, so you dismiss imagination, and you can't sense God with your senses, so you dismiss like sensory data, and you can't understand God intellectually, so you dismiss the, the intellect, and you can't be aware of God even emotionally, so you dismiss that, and you just keep dismissing everything because there's no way you're going to, no way you can use it to grasp God. And so then you're just left at the end, you just dismiss everything that you're able to dismiss, and you find that there's still something there. And he calls that dark faith, where there's still the, like, the spirit of God is still pervading everything, and you can feel that, because there's nothing left to distract you from feeling it. Hmm. Yeah, that, there it is again, right? The uh, negative theology and uh, yeah. uh, applied, you know, you know, applied to your experience. So, you know, like, whereas a Buddhist would, you would say, like, this is not self, or that is not self, you know, because I've heard it described that way by, um, uh, for example, Thanissaro Bhikkhu, um, when he's describing about sort of, when you get these states of uh, pleasant abiding, or jhanas, or whatever, why you're in there, how you can investigate even further. So you start out with this intellectual exercise of saying this is not self, that is not self. Mm -hmm. uh, but but in a meditative state, you get you look for these points amongst your pleasure. You may be fully blissed out, but then you look for like a weak point in that, and then that takes you further. You know, uh, um, I imagine yeah, yeah. until you get to nirvana. Uh, yeah, it can. Although, I mean, it, there there is no systematic way to get to nirvana, really, because um, right. you know, nirvana is not the result of a cause. You know, it's like this paradox. The Mahayana Buddhists talk about the paradox a lot that, you know, there's there is enlightenment, but there's I mean, there's no point of enlightenment. There's no body that becomes enlightened. And um, so, yeah, it's it's like a paradox. Yeah, yeah. I get that. That's where 
maybe the Christians would say it's it's a, gr- a grace. Yeah, yeah. It's like any effort is karma. If you're making mm-hmm. if you're making conscious effort, that's karma, and so that's not going to result in enlightenment because enlightenment or nirvana is not the result of a cause. Because if it was the result of a cause, then it would be conditioned, and it would be impermanent and suffering, and it wouldn't be nirvana. So it's just this paradox of there is nirvana, and you it's possible to attain nirvana, but really you can't do it through effort. It's uh, it's like I had this theory for a while that maybe the way you become enlightened is you just keep trying and trying and trying and until finally you just give up <laughs> and it's like after you give up then it then it happens because it has to be effortless mm-hmm. yeah that's i mean that's often what you hear even like again bringing back the christian saints you know they'll have these dark nights of the soul or these periods of dryness after trying very hard for so long and then Eventually, maybe a, a divine wind just blows their way, a grace from God, how they would interpret it. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. or like Krishnamurti says, I mean, you can open the window. I mean, you can clear your room up, up a bit and uh, open the window, but you can't make the wind blow in. So you can sort of right. be ready, but you can't really make it happen. So and there's no guarantee. Ready, yeah, and if you're not ready, maybe perhaps through, um, although, you know, you said it can happen just willy-nilly perhaps sometimes in some people's cases. But if you're not ready with good karma or, you know, you have to have maybe the karmic conditions in a Buddhist perspective, but you also should have some sort of uh, discipline. I mean, that's why the Buddha, you know, recommends seclusion and ethics, you know? Yeah. So you, you won't be ready without the... Uh, seclusion and the ethics or you know some some mad asceticism basically yeah i think they're not the extreme asceticism but different people are different i mean it's like um some people might have to go all the way to fourth jhana to get their mind clear enough that they're able to penetrate you know the the shadows of plato's cave and just get past all the the mental symbolism and get straight to ultimate reality whereas other people you know, they can still have choppy seas. I mean, they might just be at first jhana or something, but for some reason they have like more of an intuitive talent of just penetrating the illusion or something. So mm-hmm. some people, you know, they might have to go into really advanced practices in order to break through or whatever you want to call it. Whereas other people, especially in the West, most people in the West who have some sort of transcendental experience, they, they have it accidentally. Partly because Westerners are so lukewarm that you know we don't have the the fanaticism, you know, the the absolute un, unwavering faith of like a, a medieval Catholic or even like a, a modern Burmese monk out in the forest somewhere. So in that case, then you have to almost die, or you know, something like Eckhart Tolle has has like this uh, like panic attack or something, and, and boom, it just kind of slams you out of your uh, out of your rut. Mm-hmm. Although I can't really say if Eckhart, what Eckhart Tolle has actually attained. Right. Talking about the, the Western lukewarmness and things like this, and probably our, our overly analytical mind, you think that's why um, you know certain Vipassana, Vipassana techniques have caught on here more so than like the deeper jhanic techniques? Um, 
One reason why the jhana techniques um, haven't really caught on is that most people just can't do it very well, especially in the West, because we're like compulsive thinkers. So stilling the mind is, is it takes a lot more work than just being mindful of, of, you know, your breath or something like that. So one reason is, is it's just easier, but um, um, yeah, I mean, it works. So it, it seems to be more appropriate for most Westerners. Although if you can attain jhana, then you definitely should. I mean, like the Mahasatipatthana Sutta literally defines right concentration as the four jhanas. And, uh, Alex, didn't you have some Vipassana-related questions or something that you wanted or to touch on? Mm. I remember you saying earlier. Yeah, I think we've gone through it a little bit. But yeah, I'd just like to maybe delve into the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, maybe just a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm a kind of practical guy, so I, I've been experimenting and, and trying to practice it in my everyday life. Um, have you used it? I mean, is it is it something that obviously you have, but uh, what kind of time frame did it take you to get well acquainted with that with that sutta in, in terms of your ability to practice it and uh, and, and when you, you finally started to get it, maybe? Well, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta is like a collection of, of meditation techniques. And so you really don't have to practice all of them. And it would be almost impossible to practice all of them because it's got like the, the graveyard contemplations where you're, you're contemplating decomposing corpses, that sort of thing, mm -hmm. which, uh, yeah. And so it's with regard to the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, different traditions will emphasize different techniques from that. Like a mindfulness of breathing is is in there, so that's that's the main one. Or just mindfulness of you know just your everyday actions, and you know when you stretch forth your arm, you do it mindfully. When you withdraw and pull it back, you do it mindfully. When you turn your head, you do it mindfully. That sort of thing is uh, like a really uh, one of the main um, one of the main practices of Satipatthana that really gets a lot of use, much more so than you know the the contemplation of decomposing corpses. So um, I don't know of any method that that emphasizes all of them. You know, there might be you know you're you're content you're meditating on the thirty two parts of the body or or just meditation on on the breath or that sort of thing. And uh, maybe you'll mix it up and have two or three or four techniques. But uh, yeah, I, I don't know of anybody who would just uh, um, advise trying to do all of them. So you just find something that's uh, that works for you, and then you go with that. And if it stops working for you, maybe you try something else. Mm -hmm. I see. And and yeah, it's interesting. I I did try the death one. Um, not obviously not in the sense that you go and look at a body or whatever the, the ancient texts <laughs> prescribe. Yeah, but no definitely fields nowadays. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of hard <laughs> to, hard to come across in Sydney actually, but um, which is probably a good thing. Um. But, but yeah, I uh, did kind of meditate on the, the death and decomposition of my own body, actually, which is one of the, one of the practices described, um, mm -hmm. which I actually found to be kind of useful. It, it, it seemed to make my experience of my daily life more meaningful and immediate and i wasn't taking things for granted so much i guess which is yeah an interesting effect of that because i guess being conscious of your own death is is fairly important yeah it's called one of the great protectors right interesting okay 
And yeah. And is there like a structured way? So when you join the monastery and you do your initial studies, do they attack this in a structured way? Or is it just literally you get the sutta and you just work through it as you see fit? Like what, what's the actual method? Uh, well, in the tradition I was ordained, and each tradition is going to have its own approach. You know, so like a a, tr- a meditation tradition in Burma, you know, you have some some monk, some seato who um, really gets some kind of attainment. You know, he's he's like a meditation master, and then other monks start accumulating around him, and he becomes their teacher. And then it's like his method that worked for him gets you know gets uh, promoted and uh, promulgated and continues in a in a tradition. Like like the Mahasi tradition is uh, one of the main ones, the Pa'ak tradition in Burma. But um, so what you do is mainly just follow the instructions of uh, the uh, the teacher. And um, yeah, with regard to the Tongpulu tradition, he was uh, into mindfulness of bodily postures and mindfulness of breathing and the 32 parts of the body. And, uh, you know, he'd look at you and decide, you know, where you were at and uh, what what technique would work best for you like young monks especially would get the 32 parts of the body to work on because it's supposed to be uh good effective at uh reducing lust yeah, but uh, different 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 traditions would go about it slightly differently i don't think there is uh one particular way okay yeah i was telling member alex when we talked the other day i was telling you about the mahasi side out that's um one of the big influences on Vipassana in the West kind of comes from out of his school. And I was telling you about the labeling and whatnot, you know, labeling your movements and your thoughts. So that's, um, yeah, most out of Burma too. Yeah. Most of the Vipassana in the West is derived from either Mahasi or Goenka to some degree. Mahasi and Goenka, I think are the two main influences on, on Western Theravada Buddhism, and, and then of course the Ajahn Chah tradition for um, Western monasticism. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, um, God's own fool. Did you want to talk about Julius Evola? Because I think you um, you wanted to brush over that um, the doctrine of well, awakening. Yeah, um, because um, that book was uh, in, important for me in actually coming to kind of really rock the, the system of Theravada, believe it or not, of all of all, of all the books that I read to kind of get the uh, essence of Theravada and, and kind of uh, put everything into place for me. And um, Bhante, I know you've written um, here lately on your blog, you've been writing about uh, Evola in, a, in another way you know, in his uh, pagan imperialism, which that's a whole other <laughs> yeah. to- topic. But uh, what what would you say about uh, Julius Evola and his understanding of Buddhism? Because you, you seem pretty well familiar with uh, Evola now, and you've read several of his works, and uh, yeah, uh, and uh, including the Doctrine of Awakening. Yeah, yeah, I did read the Doctrine of Awakening, and um, it was it was interesting, and I liked it, although. It's similar to a lot of other books written by Westerners, like in the mid-20th century, where they might be scholars and really intelligent and have some valuable insights and all that sort of thing. Although, um, you know, he, he didn't have some remarkable penetrating 
um, understanding of, of Theravada. It was uh, more of an intellectual thing, I think, with him. And it was interesting, and I liked it. But uh, still, I mean, it, um, yeah, it wasn't really, uh, I mean, I didn't really derive a whole lot from it other than just this interesting whole new uh, point of view with regard to Theravada, because of course he's looking at it from like a fascistic point of view. So I'd, I'd never, I'd never really yeah. combined fascism and, and like Dhamma before, but uh, according to him, they, they seem to go together very well, which is uh, counterintuitive to say the least. I think his theory and doctrine of the awakening too, that I uh, liked for, a layman was sort of this, um, you know, he, he sort of, he offered it up for those on the right or those who revolt against the modern world who yeah. perhaps don't want to involve with it at all. You know what I mean? He said he, he offered it like, here's this path. And he, he, he seemed very well acquainted with it. And he had his own sort of a, uh, nuances and you know idiosyncratic ways of describe, describing dhamma and practice, but he offers it up as 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 for something for a man who's sick of the world. Yeah, yeah, he, he saw it as like transcend. A, yeah, and look down yeah. from vulture's peak upon this uh, madness of this modern world. Yeah, he saw it as like a heroic path for the uh, Aryan spiritual aristocracy or something like that. Right. And um, maybe another way to ride the tiger, you know. But he, he definitely, um, you know, more so than like some of these Western Theravada books you read, he offered a virile interpretation of, of, uh, of Buddhism which I think is true to the early traditions, you know, yeah. I think yeah, that's, that's probably what appealed to me in his, yeah. in his, it, him coming to it. It wasn't some like, you know, um, you know, kumbaya sort of, you know, let's all hold hands sort of approach, you know, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like a, a compassion based heart oriented approach to Buddhism, which is really big in the West now because so many Dharma teachers are, are, are women. And yeah. so many, so many practitioners are women. So they like a more feminine approach, which is like the heart-based, compassionate, um, liberate oneself from suffering. Whereas, like the masculine approach is more head-oriented and it's more of a liberation from delusion. And all it's the same right. liberation, but it's a different emphasis. And yeah, that's one reason why I liked Theravada. That's one reason why I was attracted to it. I, I, I said earlier, I think if I remember correctly, that um, the Sutanipata was like one of my main inspirations to to really be drawn to Theravada Buddhism. And that was these these ascetic wanderers who were absolutely fearless and tough as wood. And that, that was like a really a really nice ideal that I could really relate to. I like that. So yeah. And um, there, there is really a call for a more masculine approach because, I mean, you could say that Theravada Buddhism originally was the most masculine spiritual system ever devised, more masculine than Islam, because it was devised by these tough forest ascetics that avoided women like the plague. And it was just yeah. made by men for men. And it was like these fearless, tough ascetic men who were devising the system. Right. Of course, the early Pali canon is replete with stories of masculinity. Like just 
extreme stories that, you know, almost totally unbelievable. But as you say, like there's this almost like martial Indo-Aryan rejection of anything feminine in the original uh, Pali uh, canon in many of those texts, which, um, yeah. which for me, when I read the Doctrine of Awakening, I wasn't fully aware of at that point. So for me, the book was interesting because it opened me up to that different way of uh, viewing it, you know, which is these days, as you say, you have uh, a female or typically a female dominated um, form of Buddhism in the West, which can be a little bit, uh, I, I found it unappealing myself. Um, and and yeah. as, as soon as I read that book, I was like, oh, this is something I can, I can subscribe to. And it just suited me better um, with that understanding and that, that context, I guess. Yeah, or just reading the original ancient texts is, was how I went about it, and then of course it's, it's there's almost no femininity involved at all. Yes, you know there, there's sure. there's talk about compassion, you know, like having compassion for all beings and that sort of thing. But uh, still, even even when it's talking about compassion, it's talking about it in an intellectual sort of way, yeah. where you're it's like an abstraction, where like the monk, the instructions on sending metta or loving kindness to all beings it's like you're you're dividing up the universe into quadrants and just beaming loving kindness in this direction and in that direction and so it's, it's there's a certain amount of like masculine intellectual abstraction involved even in even in like sending uh love or compassion or that sort of thing mm. uh, and of course even, even then it's not it's not sappy you no know? not at all it's, uh the Buddha, the yeah. Buddha's quite severe. Like the way he's described is like he's not he's a Buddha, but he's he's not just going around being compassionate and loving of all the monks. Like if the monks make transgressions, he just severely punishes it. And he doesn't mince his words, right? He's just oh, like he you, you you stuffed up, bro. You're out of here, you know? It, it <laughs> kinda it sounds like a, almost like a gang. It reminds me of a militaristic gang when I when I've read these these stories you know, as they're projected. in, in yeah, There states. is a lot of like militaristic imagery in some of the old suttas. Like there's one called the Pasura Sutta where it's using all these like military metaphors of, you know, the, the, the heroic Dharma warrior, that kind of thing, mm. which is, uh, yeah, I, that, it appeals to me for some reason. Yeah. The, well, they're largely made up of the uh, warrior class too, weren't the, you know, the, I mean, the Buddha himself, of course, and the caste, excuse me. The warrior caste, and uh, you know that could have played a part in it as well. You know they were applying their same sort of martial approach to life to uh, to the world. They were applying it to transcending the world. You know, freeing themselves from the world. So, yeah, yeah, and it, it is effectively, if you think about it, it's it's very much a, uh, a virile path because there's there's not a lot to hang on to. There's not a lot of sentiment or, you know, you know, all these yeah, buzzwords. Yeah, exactly. And and all these buzzwords that Westerners use, like uh, you know, love and all this kind of stuff. They have these funny obsessions with with these kinds of sentimental labels. Um Yeah. I mean, how can you hang on to that and and be a practicing Buddhist, you know, like in any day to day meaningful way? It just seems uh Or these social justice causes you know and um uh, i mean i i think of one so i don't know if it's in the suttas or the commentaries uh, you could uh, let us know bonte but when um 
a king was going to fight against the Sakyans and his plan was to wipe them out. The Buddha did intercede on their behalf like uh, once or twice, I believe. But then when he saw the king was just going to do it anyways, he, he didn't. He, did, he, had a whole, he had a whole mass of men. He could have, you know, they could have, uh, you know, linked arms around a Sakyan village or something. But, you know, he didn't do yeah. that, you know. He just said, you know, listen, don't do this. <laughs> but when he wanted to do it anyways, it wasn't this, you know, sort of like, you know, where you see monks or Buddhists, you know, protesting Trump or whatever, love Trump's hate or something. You know what I mean? It was yeah. just, uh, it, it was much more like, listen, what you're doing is wrong. That's bad karma. Don't do it. Uh, if you like me, I, these are my people. I like them. Don't kill them all. But when the, when the king decided he was going to kill them all, well, you know, the Buddha didn't organize a resistance. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the Buddha, I mean, in the Buddhist time, there were different kinds of, like, uh, institutionalized killing. You know, there's the killing of animals for food and leather and that sort of thing. And then there was warfare. And then there was animal sacrifice. And the Buddha, I mean, he he... I assume he had enough wisdom, he obviously did, to realize that no amount of preaching against, uh, uh, like, warfare was going to stop kings from going to war. And uh, even probably the eating of meat, I mean, the Buddha himself, according to the po ancient polytext anyway, still ate meat, so long as, as, long as it's not killed for a monk's sake specifically. But um, apparently the times were ripe for Indian civilization to outgrow bloody animal sacrifices. So that was what he really emphasized with regard to, uh, to uh, killing. Plus just, you know, just not killing animals and, you know, having, uh, putting yourself in the, the place of the other, that sort of thing. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you and that sort of thing. Right. Mm. So yeah, do you, that, a lot of time. Sorry. Well, I was just going to, sorry. Um, yeah, a lot of people are surprised by when they find out that some Buddhists aren't vegetarian or that, you know, the oldest texts and tend, tend to, uh, uh, you know, show the Buddha as not being a vegetarian, although the Mahayanas dispute this. Um, yeah. And, I'm, and I myself am a vegetarian, but I get the logic of the Buddha. To me, it makes the most sense, you know, like you're not trying to make like a dharma practice out of what you eat you know what i mean once it's yeah. become food it's food you know no no different than anything else uh, to me the logic is kind of irrefutable you know you don't have something killed in your name or this and that but you also don't put something upon your supporters you know like just do this for me or do that and whatever is given to you it's all food it, you know what i mean it's a dead animal it's a dead plant whatever yeah. right I, 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 I get the logic of, of that for sure. Yeah, plus, I mean, a lot of people don't realize, most people don't realize that Buddhism really was never intended to be like a social movement. That it was, you were renouncing the world. You were just, you were opting out of society and going off into the forest and just, uh, you know, becoming like an, an asocial hermit, pretty much. And Christianity was kind of the same way, too. I mean, it wasn't intended to be this uh, societal movement, it was, it was sort of like a, a way of opting out of society more than anything else. So right. society is just going to be insane no matter what you do. So that's, that's why you're bailing out. You can't make, you can't make uh, utopia. It's just not going to happen. The samsara is always going to suck. 
no matter what you do. So the best thing to do is not try to fix samsara is you just uh, go into the forest and, and meditate, just bail out, opt out of the right. system. How, how do you Amen. think um, progressivism got tied up with Buddhism? I've always wondered because, yeah, on reflecting on some of those ancient texts, I'm kind of I just don't get it. I don't understand how they got to that point. But um, obviously, you look around these days, and most people that I've come across that say that they're Buddhist are also, I would say, politically extremely progressive. And as you say, yeah. this ties into things like veganism and vegetarianism and all these uh, dogmas, effectively. Um, that, yeah, that I would call progressive. Like, how did that happen? Um, do you think? Well, I think it started mainly with the, with the hippies, and um, a lot of the hippies. I mean, they just wanted to be different from their parents. They were like rebelling, and so um, a conservative who has religious or spiritual inclinations, uh, they're just going to follow the conservative tradition of their their civilization of their society. So most. Um, conservative religious people in the West are just going to follow Christianity because that's like the, the tradition, you know, they will be traditionalists or something. And so left wingers are more likely to adopt some foreign system that is not traditional. So I think that's, that's kind of how the left um, really um, sort of took over Buddhism in the West. Like in, in Burma it's the conservatives that are Buddhists. But uh, in the West, it's the, the people that reject the traditional ways of their own culture that are adopting this, this foreign, um, essentially a, a foreign system. So I assume that's, that's probably the, one of the main reasons for that. And then, of course, it's um, like, uh, you know, we, you can get into the whole conspiracy theory of, you know, neo-Marxism and it's trying to pretty much taking over um, systematically, all these different belief systems to kind of get everybody on board. But uh, I think the original reason is just that it was, uh, you know, the leftists are not, are like anti-traditionalists, and so they're they're taking in these these foreign systems like Buddhism or like the Hare Krishnaism or or anything like that. Yeah, I guess you could see probably if if Buddhism is considered one of these things where people are questioning definitions and tearing things down, how there would be a temptation to to see it uh, fitting in with progressivism in some way, and that Marxist kind of outlook that you were describing. Then, like people could misconstrue it, right? They could they could think, "Oh, um, we're tearing down all the old institutions." Buddhism, apparently, according to them, is kind of nihilistic, or or it's seeking to do something similar. I, I guess mm -hmm. I could I could see how people could could see things that way. I mean, just, just thinking out loud. Yeah. I think, yes. you know, the hippie movement, and that's what I would say a lot of it got into, you know, just the whole Shambhala and all this, you know, uh, Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism sort of kind of, I think, uh, opened its arms to that sort of thing too, maybe more so than, uh, Theravada Buddhism, you know, Zen, of course, with the beatniks and all that, you know, there's yeah. a lot of misunderstanding about what these sort of things was. And by the time Zen came to America, you know, even with Japanese 
uh, you know, people, it, it had long since been, uh, sort of diluted from what it was from the time of Dogen, you know, because the Imperial Japanese sort of, uh, secularized it and made them not be monks anymore and get married and, and all yeah. this sort of thing, you know? So, uh, it was already quite different. So I think, you know, the early kind of Buddhist Buddhism that, uh, people were being exposed to in the West was uh, already kind of compromised, I would say, in some regards. Yeah, uh, yeah. no doubt. The message at the beginning. I think there's maybe another factor is that, um, you know, like the hippies were into like psychedelic drugs and so forth. And um, so in a way they got exposed to alternative interpretations of reality or altered states of consciousness and then a lot of them would then move on from that to trying to attain these kind of expanded states without the use of the chemicals. Mm. And, you know, it's like Ram Dass started off that way. To some degree, I started off that way also. Yeah. yeah and I think a lot, of, a lot of monks of my generation started off with using like LSD or mushrooms as a kind of spiritual uh, vehicle. And then you get this insight that, you know, the usual normal way of interpreting reality isn't necessarily the only way or even the best way of interpreting reality. And then you start exploring from there and then you, you find meditation and uh, other kinds of yogic techniques that uh, um, you can use as a, a better substitute, hopefully a better substitute than for the chemicals. Mm. Uh, you mentioned before that you, your father was an occultist. Um, what, what kind of brand of occultist was he? Was it like Golden Dawn or was, was it something, uh, something else? Oh, he was completely uh, self-taught. Right. So he started off um, getting interested in hypnosis when he was uh, like a medic in the army. And he, he found that like uh, an injured soldier who's in shock is essentially in a kind of trance state. And then you can you can tell the injured soldier, you're not going to feel the pain and you're going to constrict the blood flow in, in this injured part of your arm so that you don't bleed so much and everything. And he was just really fascinated by that. And he was always interested in exploring unknown frontiers. And that was just a really fascinating unknown frontier for him. So he got really interested in hypnosis originally. And then he wound up marrying a woman, not my mother, who was just uh, an extremely good hypnotic subject, you know, along the level of Edgar Casey, who would just go into like these extremely deep trance states when her heart would almost stop and, and she, she could, you know, do automatic writing. And, and um, so then from there, he, he started getting interested in like seances and, you know, channeling, I guess it's called now, maybe it has even a different name now. And, um, and then he started just getting interested in, you know, studying um, just various sorts of like ESP, dream communications. And, um, and then from there, he uh, actually started uh, practicing witchcraft. He was like uh, the leader of a coven of, of witches, of, of like bored housewife witches in a small town in Washington state. And um, so it was it was mainly just he was just interested in certain things and he didn't really join any uh, established occultist organization he was just really interested in that sort of thing and it was sort of like a you know if he would had been born in the stone age he just would have become a shaman i think he was just he was just drawn to that sort yeah, of thing interesting 
I know that one prominent uh, cultist, Israel Regardi, who's part of that Crowley kind of canon. I don't know if you've heard of him before. Um, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, so he, Crowley, yeah, yeah. So this guy was Crowley's uh, secretary, effectively. Um, and then he branched off and did his own thing. He started uh, studying uh, Reiki and therapy, which is interesting. It has many similarities to Buddhism, but it's probably a mm. subject for another time. I think Reich actually stole um, his psychotherapy in inverted commas from buddhism but anyway we'll talk about that later maybe but yeah he he always said that the psychedelic experience is actually probably a useful thing for people who will go on to study some of these practices so I, he was referring specifically to occultism and which is initiatory occultism with the golden dawn and organizations like that 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 do have meditation and things but he always yeah. said it could be useful as a primer in understanding higher states of consciousness um, as, as a useful kind of tool in that respect, or almost like preparing the person for, for those experiences. Did you, do yeah, you see it that, that way that. or not, not so yeah, much? Yeah, I think that would be possible. Yeah. Because, I mean, when you're taking a, a psychedelic drug, I mean, really, you're, you're experiencing just a different form of consciousness from the, the usual one or from the, the normal, you know, the normal state. And then that, that can give you real insights, you know, sort of like meditative states can give you real insights, too, because you, you're, you're realizing that what you consider to be just the reality is just one of multiple possible realities. Sure. Buddha was I, um, obviously totally against drugs. I think uh, that, that's clear from the from the texts. I think how does that um, how does that fit in with doing psychedelics? Like if you're a, going on to be a monk, I mean, if you've done well, drugs well, or whatever. To interject here for a moment, sorry, Bonte and Alex, and you can edit this part out. But uh, our <clears throat> our monk here may be too modest. Admit it. Admit it. But he's he's done ayahuasca as a monk. Oh, you're kidding? Okay. So interesting. Very <laughs> yeah. interesting. I don't know yeah, if you I want to talk bugs. about that or ayahuasca not, Bonte. But, uh, I'm liking where this is going. Um, potentially, Have, having done it myself, um, I'd, I'd like to hear about. I don't know if you you know if you want to talk about it. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah I got invited to an ayahuasca ceremony, and I just assumed that it would be similar to. Uh, like LSD, you know, it'd be like a head trip, like a psychedelic head trip or something. And I went to this place and it was mostly women there and um, took this, this stuff that just turned me inside out. And um, I did have some, some significant insights, like um, one common experience I've taken ayahuasca or yahe, which is like the Colombian uh, formula, the recipe for it. Um, I've taken it like four times and um, one common experience is that uh, so long as my thoughts are positive or at least neutral, I'm fine. I'm like surfing the waves. But if I start thinking negative thoughts, even just remembering how awful the stuff tasted, then I just start this downward spiral into just like gut wrenching nausea. So it's like, I've got, it's almost like a meditation technique where I've got, got to keep my mind positive, just um, meditating on yes or gratitude or, or thank you or any kind of positive sort of feeling that uh, keeps me from just puking my guts out and, and just crashing. 
So, so there's that. And also the first time I took it, um, there was this period I went through where it was like anything that I directed my attention to, it just felt sticky. It was like, it was sucking me in. And so it was like, that was a relatively advanced meditation I had to do while I was on ayahuasca the first time is just trying not to just a very strange and interesting experience where you can, I mean, it's, it's like, it's always there, but you know, it's like everything around you is kind of sticky and it has this effect. It just kind of like catches you, you know, but uh, at, at the time it just became just plainly obvious, but there's always this impression afterwards that it, you know, what I was seeing was something that's always really there. It's just that usually we don't notice it because it's, uh, we're at a cruder level or we're just so distracted with other things. Mm. Did you do it in America or the Amazon? Did you travel? But it tastes awful. Oh, it's atrocious. Yeah. Yeah, it's truly the worst thing I've ever tasted. Like when, when someone told me it's really bad, like I'm, I'm pretty tolerant of bad tastes but yeah man it's something else like it's just just repulsive repulsive in every way you can imagine it's terrible yeah colombian yahe is even worse than uh, peruvian ayahuasca really jesus yeah I don't even know how that's possible <laughs> god damn uh, I, I've, yeah. I've never done them um but other things yeah it's definitely not a head trip like like LSD. I mean, it, it's like a visceral kind of a thing. It's if, at least for me, you know, it's just like my chest has got like the suffering of the universe gushing through it, and it just blasts my chest wide open, mm -hmm. so that uh, in a way I get an insight into more of a feminine approach to uh, to to life. You know, like, like more of a heart oriented compassionate sort of uh, an approach to life because I'm much more open and compassionate for a day or two after I've taken the stuff. There's definitely a female energy uh, to it, obviously. Yeah. That, I guess the natives classify it in that way, right? She's, well, it's meant to be a, a female uh, spirit. Um, yeah. But yeah, yeah I, I noticed the same thing. Absolutely. Yeah. So in a way, that's good. It gives you an alternative point of view, it helps you to understand a, a more heart-oriented more feminine approach to reality, mm. which uh, I really, I mean, I, I had girlfriends and, and stuff like that before I was a monk, but uh, you never really experience it directly mm. like that. Mm. So did that was kind of interesting. Did you do it in the uh, jungle or did you do it um, in, in the United States at like a retreat? There the first time I took it was in Vancouver, Canada, Okay, in like some vacant office building. And then after that, uh, uh, there, there are a few places I took it um, in uh, Washington State, and then once in California. Right, right. So, so, how does Buddhism deal with taking drugs? I was that was under the impression that it was there was something against it, but um, yeah. Well, curious the, to know the fifth precept, the fifth precept for for lay people is, um, I undertake the precept to abstain from like ale, wine, and intoxicants which cause heedlessness or cloudedness of mind so um you can interpret some drugs you know like not all drugs cause heedlessness or cloudedness of mind like caffeine technically is a drug and um there aren't very many real hard-ass buddhists that would say that caffeine should be forbidden even to monks so um you have to decide whether the drug is actually causing cloudedness of mind. 
And to my surprise, I found that actually cannabis is allowed in the ancient rules of monastic discipline for medicinal purposes. Hmm. And you're, a monk is even allowed to have a pipe for inhaling the the, the fumes. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and most people don't realize this, but it's it's right there in the text. It's called banga, like B-H-A-N-G-A is the, the Pali word for cannabis. And it, right. it is allowable to monks, but it's, it has to be used medicinally. Hmm. And it doesn't really say how, how it's supposed to be used. And uh, the commentaries were, were pretty much clueless, I think. They are just guessing. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, if so, it offers you a pipe, I mean... Yeah, yeah, you'd think so. There's only a way or two to do that, right? You could smoke it or puff it yeah. or well, <laughs> like, inhale I th- or... I think in, like, the medieval commentaries, it says that uh, you're supposed to roll in it to induce sweating. But uh, I've never heard of that one before, and I think they were no, just guessing. Yeah. The commentaries, a lot of the time, they'll just completely guess and just pass it off as, you know, an assertion, which is uh, one good reason not to take the commentaries too seriously. Buddhaghosism, I call it. Buddhaghosism. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I got my uh, Vasudhi Magas right here in front of me. But, uh, <laughs> mm. um, yeah. Well, so, I think, yeah, I think it's been ahead. a good chat. I guess it must be getting late for you guys, right? Like it's uh, what what time there? 10 o'clock or something? 11? Uh, it's yeah. almost eight. Eight there, right? Okay. Oh, yeah. It's almost 11 for me, but yeah. But I think it's it's been a fruitful one. Definitely, yeah. It seems like got a lot out of it. So, um, yeah, it's been good. Yeah. Right. Well, thanks for coming on, Panabasa. Um, uh, yeah, I certainly got a lot from it. So, um, yeah, I'll start editing this, and I guess I'll let you know uh, when we uh, when we put it out. But um, okay, good. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, but th- this has been really good, and, and uh, actually, I'd probably like to do it a- again sometime. Uh, sure go through some stuff but uh yeah yeah i can uh i can vouch uh Ponte panabasa here has a lot of stories that uh, he hasn't even got into yet <laughs> yeah weird <laughs> stories yeah there's a there's a lot there including an ogre attack but save that for another time. <laughs> <An> ogre. <laughs> yeah the time yeah. i got attacked by ogres yeah <laughs> yeah but that's okay. I'm, <laughs> Well, maybe we can dedicate one episode just to that, just to the the attack of the ogres. I like that. Uh, Alex, are you going to put this on um, YouTube when it's done? Yeah, I am. Unless you have um, to YouTube. Something. No, I have no objections. Okay. Well, let me That's know. That's what I prefer for for listening to your podcast is on YouTube. Sure. Yeah, I'll upload it myself. Uh, so I, I do all the editing myself, so it, it does take a little while before I upload it, but um, yeah, I'll, I'll get mm-hmm. around to it shortly, I think. Uh, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. 100%. 100%. Absolutely. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, I've been, been excellent. Um, are there any projects or anything, Panobasa, that you would like to share, actually, with the audience before we go? Like, um, are there any stuff you're working on, blogs, people might be interested in, in looking at certain material that you've well, Coming I'm out. always always working on the blog. Put out a blog post, at least one blog post every five days, and uh, yeah, I've got a few social media that I'm uh, available on. 
Mm-hmm. I haven't uh, got on there minds.com yet. Uh, have you been on there, Alex? Minds.com? No, I haven't. No. You're, yeah, you're on like, there, right, Bonte? Yeah, yeah. It's like alt Facebook. Okay. Interesting. Well, I might check it out then. It sounds good. Um, definitely I not. Can, I can recommend his. I can recommend his blog, and even if you can find the links for them, Alex, uh, his his older blogs are also very good. I actually read some of your older stuff years ago before you came back out on the uh, yeah on the Outsider yeah. blog. Yeah, yeah. The uh, old one is, is mainly uh, a Buddhist one, or, or it's it's more philosophical and Buddhistic. Whereas the the new blog, I mean, it's like the the main theme of my new blog is just being politically incorrect. Mm. Okay. So, <laughs> Nimpa, I can't say it. Nimpa yeah, Pancha. Nipa Pancha. Pancha. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I especially loved, uh, uh, you got to look these up, Alex. Some of his, uh, what were those meditation journals or retreat journals that you would do during the rain? Was that during uh, the rain season or just the whole year? No, I left. I, I wrote a journal. I kept a journal when I was living in uh, Alondo Kathapa National Park under this big rock ledge. I didn't enter a building for like almost 10 months. And I kept a journal the whole time. And uh, that's that's actually published uh, on my Nipa Pancha website. Right. It, but didn't you do like ones a few years in a row or something? Or am I missing? Um, I, I did keep a journal the, the year after that, but I haven't published it yet. Because some of them were, I, you know, that was years ago. I read it, and um, if you can find those, Alex, uh, they're 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 pretty funny. Some of them I wrote down because some of them are just kind of like short, like little entries, right? Like you know, uh, woke up today, tried meditating, kept thinking about how an undertaker works with dead bodies all day, and then goes home and diddles his wife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just little short <laughs> things like this. Uh, I'm just uh, there's several like that. They're really like uh, have that are very very good. I, I we should uh, work on getting them published. Yeah. Hey, if wow. um if you want to send me the links, um I'll definitely link to it in show notes. So we'll we'll get that together for sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But publishing, hey, that could be interesting as well. I'd love to read something like that. Yeah. yeah. Those those journals were good because they're short, but some of them are just. Really funny. I remember huh. another time having you saying you have a dream you were like making out with the Burmese voice version of a Cub Scout or something. I don't know. Uh, yeah, it was some. That was a weird. <laughs> yeah, it was just some weird. I don't know what it was. Yeah, you can yeah. you can dream all kinds of weird stuff. All right, I just but I, I was, just uh, I was, yeah I was, was like probably, all of my dreams, including the really nasty ones. Yeah, it was probably like five years ago or so that i read that before i met you in person and i had no idea who you were but uh i i was laughing out loud seriously and, and it was like there's a monk that talks like this this is crazy <laughs> yeah well that's that's one problem it's i tried to be an ancient indian you know i was like trying to live up to the ideals and live the lifestyle of a monk in the buddhist time and i just couldn't i mean i couldn't stop being an american you know it's like you know, no, I, I've, you seen Gil- right? I've seen Gilligan's Island. I, I know every episode of Gilligan's <laughs> Island, and there's no way to get rid of that. It's just there, you know. Star Trek and Led Zeppelin and all this, it's still in my mind. And uh, so I can't really be a, a proper ancient Indian because uh, I've still got all of this American pop culture cluttering up my head. 
Yeah, interesting. Okay, yeah, well, I'd love to read it. So, um, yeah, we'll try to find the uh, the link. Sounds good. All right. Well, that's uh, it's really good, gentlemen. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Alex, too, for having me on. This is fun. I've never done a podcast type thing, so thanks, man. No pleasure. Actually, I kind of like this format, so maybe we can look at doing it again. It's good to have someone else, yeah. you know. Uh, talk about stuff that I might have forgotten about, or you know, what a different perspective definitely helps. Yeah, so, yeah, do it again. Yeah, yeah. Let me know, and Fonte uh, will will be in touch. We'll let you know when it comes out, and I keep in touch with you periodically, anyways, and I'll continue to do so. Hmm. Good, yeah. and uh, be be happy. Okay, <laughs> shall <you>. do. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Okay. okay. See you later, guys. Bye. Right. Bye.